Hello everybody, my name is Luke Marshall and you are listening to Things Observed. And today we are going to be doing our third part in our series on Yamashita's gold, looking into gold warriors. And today we're going to delve into some stuff outside of gold warriors as well. And I will list all of my various sources at the end of this episode. But we have a good episode today. We're going to be talking all about what else but CIA machinations and tomfoolery. (laughs) And I'm sitting here at my desk where I am currently being swallowed by books. I'm running out of shelf space in my house, so I've been putting book after book after book on my desk, and it officially looks like the desk of a madman. I've got books on all kinds of different subjects, Um, but I guess the most important book I've got on my table is the good book. Perhaps I will pull a Kanye West like he did when he went on InfoWars, and I'll put my right hand on the Bible while I'll speak, and uh, I can't find my my mask at the moment, or my, uh, my, you know, cool, you know, thousand, multiple thousand dollar puffy jacket, so um, I guess the best that I can do is put my hand on a, on a copy of the Bible, but anyhow, that's enough about my messy desk, which I have my laptop and microphone on, um, but yeah, let's just go ahead and we will dive right into all of this stuff in regards to Gold Wars, because we have a lot to cover. In the previous couple episodes, we talked, you know, just about the basics, about how in the Philippines we have the Japanese putting all of this gold, because they can no longer take a lot of this golden lily loot, back over to Japan, and we have Santi, who would be in charge of the torture of Kojima, who was Yamashita's driver, and then we have, who else but Edward Lansdale, figure out when he comes to the Philippines, kind of by happenstance, that Santi is doing this interrogation, and so he starts looking all into, you know, all that's been talked about this golden lily loot. And so Lansdale starts sitting in, starts overseeing the torture of Kojima and getting all this juicy information. And it'll be largely because of him that the CIA would come into this large black budget of Yamashita's gold. And so I figured that for about the majority of this episode... We ought to just talk about Edward Lansdale because he is a character who is at the center of the American recovery of Yamashita's gold as well as what would be done with this gold afterwards. And he's just an all-around interesting figure who was one of the ultimate cold warriors and he would do so many things. And he would play a role in so many different stories, even outside of Gold Warriors. So we're just going to start off with looking into Edward Lansdale. And Lansdale was born in 1908. He was the son of a Presbyterian father and a Christian scientist mother. And for those of you who don't know, Christian scientists are the ones who refuse to take any kind of medication for anything. Just if you get sick, you pray it away. 
You don't go to the doctor. So it's a very rigid belief system, and it is very intense. And so he would grow up in a highly religious household, to say the least. And he would remember all sorts of religious sayings during his devout middle-class upbringing, which he would even go on to teach some of these religious sayings to assassins who worked for him in the Philippines, Vietnam, and Japan. And often these sayings would actually serve as code phrases as well. And one of these sayings was, When the work has once begun, don't leave it until it's done. Be the labor great or small, do it well or not at all. So Lansdale would study journalism at UCLA during the time of the Great De Depression, and he would afterwards go to work in the advertising industry as a copywriter until Pearl Harbor when he decided to list, enlist in the military. And he would get a position concocting psychological warfare plots for military intelligence service and eventually the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, or the precursor to the CIA. And early on in his PSYOPs career, he would think of, of ways to demoralize the Japanese army, and he would write a pamphlet entitled from the serpent's mouth where he took old japanese proverbs and he would apply them to faults in japan's military strategy and this is something that we will see over the course of the episode as kind of a recurring motif if you will in lansdell's career where he likes to take a country's belief system and in this case you know japanese proverbs and use it in his psychological warfare and he would also go on to use the uh, superstitions or religious beliefs whatever you want to call them of various nations that he was conducting psyops against so kind of like proto Aquino uh, Michael Aquino kind of stuff so at the end of September of 1945 Truman would order the closure of the OSS but men like General Donovan and his deputy brigadier, General John Magruder, would work on ways to move OSS agents into other intelligence services and government agencies, as well as private sector posts where they would work in the realm of commercial intelligence. So for those of you who listen to the 9-11 episode or just who know about this, you know, kind of think about like Kroll Associates kind of stuff. And there would actually be people like I want to say... Um, General Electronics um, um, would have like a commercial intelligence wing. But at the time, a captain, Lansdale, would be moved to the American G2 unit of Army Intelligence in the Philippines, which was ran at the time by General Willoughby. And I believe that we talked a little bit about Willoughby in last episode, if I'm not incorrect. But Lansdale was one of 50 former OSS staff to be transferred to the G2 section in the Philippines. And when Lansdale arrived in the Philippines, he would de develop a disdain for the Japanese after seeing the carnage that had taken place in Manila. I mean, we're talking about, you know, people being gutted in the streets, beheadings rapes, all kinds of stuff. So what Lansdale would go on to do afterwards was no good, but you could kind of see how one could maybe develop a bit of a disdain for the Japanese at the time. Um, you know, but obviously don't generalize a whole people group. But in a journal entry from, uh, oh man, my computer started to reboot, but, and I was going to read from this journal entry, but anyhow, um, 
Okay, here we got it. In a journal entry from November 10th of 1946, this is Lansdale's journal entry, he would write, Many of the Filipinos were tortured until they were just broken lumps of bleeding flesh. And so, during this time at G2, he would hear of the Japanese hiding gold as well as the torture of Kojima by Santee. And so, what would Lansdale do? As previously mentioned, he took administrative control of the interrogation, which he could do with ease because during this time, all the Willoughby staff of, you know, all these G2 guys their officers and the rest of general macarthur's team were off in japan at the moment so he kind of had the whole g2 offices to himself and since he was one of the few men at the g2 office in manila he would have the clerical staff and basically the remainder of the people who were there search all of the files for any mention of japanese loot and he was able to do this because lansdale was top dog in the g2 office at the time so after days of torture, Kojima would finally break, and Lansdale would take Kojima and Santi, along with a convoy of cars, to go to more than a dozen Golden Lily sites. And Lansdale, he would go on to report all of this to McMicking, and then he would fly to Tokyo to brief Willoughby and MacArthur on the findings. And then, before you know it, this information would make its way on down to Washington, where he would fill in General Magruder, who was the head of the Strategic Services Unit, which was the last remnant of the OSS at this time, before going on to report all of this to President Truman's National Security Aide and Navy Captain Clark Clifford and other members of the Truman Cabinet. And so this would, news would make its way all the way down to Truman, who would decide to keep everything a secret and to recover as much of the gold as possible. So much of what took place afterwards is a mystery, and even the Seagraves say this in Gold Warriors, due to the secrecy surrounding the Washington's um, recovery of all this golden lily treasure. But there are two high-level CIA sources of the Seagraves that tell that MacArthur and Robert B. Anderson would go on with Lansdale and Santee to inspect a variety of the sites in the Philippines. And Anderson would be rewarded for this by being given the position of Navy Secretary, and he would go on to be the Deputy Secretary of Defense as well in the future, and to hold the position of Secretary of the Treasury under Eisenhower. So Anderson would begin to kind of make his way up the ranks after this took place. And Santee's men, along with a team of men from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, would open many of these faults, and Anderson and MacArthur would walk down row upon row of gold bars. What they learned was that billions of dollars worth of gold, diamonds, and any other kind of treasure you could basically imagine had been looted by the Imperial Japanese from a variety from a variety of places in the Far East. And while much of it made its way back to Japan, much of it remained in the Philippines. So this wasn't the only black gold in the picture at this time. So let's take just a quick detour and discuss the Black Eagle Trust before we return to Lansdale. Because a lot of the Axis powers during World War II were looting and pillaging as they went upon their imperialist conquest. And they would, you know, be defeated and all of this treasure just didn't disappear. It didn't evaporate into thin air when their governments collapsed. So it was still there for the taking. And Washington 
would do some taking, to say the very least. And so the United States would say that 550 metric tons of Nazi gold was recovered. But according to the Seagraves, there was much more than this. A business associate of Robert Anderson, the Anderson who we were just talking about, said that he saw office photos, um, photos in Anderson's office would be a better way to phrase that, of Anderson sitting on top of stacks of bullion that Hitler had stolen from Poland, Austria, Belgium, and France. It ended up with the Allied High Command, and no one was allowed to talk about it. So that was a direct quote from this guy who saw these photographs of Anderson just chilling with that Nazi bullion. Um, so this same source said that he would see 11,200 metric tons of Nazi gold collected in a courtyard of a convent in Europe. And 11,200 metric tons is a lot different than 550 metric tons. I'm sure that you guys can um, do the math on that. But it's like, I don't know, maybe just 10,700 metric tons more gold than they said that they found. Um, which we can get into in a second, what the incentive would be for lying about how much gold they found. But I'm sure that you guys already know that. Um, so another story of large amounts of Nazi gold that would just mysteriously vanish was when a truck carrying 100 tons found near a salt mine in Merkers, Germany, would vanish and was supposedly hijacked. But the Seagraves contest that this is more likely that this is the gold that would, some of the gold, I should say, that disappeared and made its way to the convent courtyard, referenced by Anderson's business associate. So I will real quickly read from Gold Warriors about some of this access Black Eagle Trust gold. The reason for all this discretion was a top-secret project called Black Eagle, a strategy first suggested to President Roosevelt by Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson and his wartime advisors. John J. McCloy, later head of the World Bank, Robert Lovett, later Secretary of Defense, and Robert B. Anderson, later Secretary of the Treasury. Stimson proposed using all recovered Axis war loot, Nazi, fascist, and Japanese, to finance a global political action fund, because it would be difficult, if not impossible, to determine who were the rightful owners of all the looted gold, better to keep it reco its recovery quiet and set up a trust to help friendly governments stay in power after the war. This was informally called the Black Eagle Trust, after the German Black Eagle, referring to Nazi bullion marked with an eagle and swastika, recovered from underground vaults of the Reichsbank. According to some sources, the Black Eagle Trust could only have been set up with the cooperation of the most powerful banking families in America and Europe, including the Rockefellers, Harrimans, Rothschilds, Oppenheimers, Warburgs, and others. So that is from the Seagraves and Gold Warriors. So Henry Stimson, who was just mentioned in that quote, he was a Wall Street lawyer who had worked in a variety of positions under five different presidents. And he knew Manila well from the time that he had been the governor general of the Philippines in the 1920s. And by the time Pearl Harbor came crashing into the scene, <laughs> he was an old man. And Stimson would delegate responsibility on important matters to four assistant secretaries of war, who all just so happened to have close ties to either the Rockefellers or the Harrimans. Surely just a coincidence. 
One of these men was John J. McCloy, and Stimson, along with Anderson and John J. McCloy, would in large part oversee this Black Eagle Trust, and as well as some other recovered access power gold. So, McCloy had grown up poor in Philadelphia, but he would make his way into Harvard Law School and end up finding his way in the favor of the Harrimans, whose patriarch, E.H. Harriman, was a railroad magnate. And he came into favor of the Harrimans by securing $77 million in bond issues for Union Pacific Railroad. And he would go on to work in Millbank Tweed, which handled the affairs of who else besides the Rockefellers and their Chase Bank, as well as being a chairman of Chase in the future. So McCloy, uh, you know, he knew how to grease the wheels of power, to say the very least. And he would end up being the head of the World Bank and a leader of the Council on Foreign Relations, which, you know, we could do a whole episode just on uh, the Council on Foreign Relations or, you know, Chase Bank or just any of those people, Union Pacific Railroad, any of those people who he worked for. And so the Seagraves discuss Anderson after his political career. Eventually, this would lead to Anderson becoming involved in BCCI, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, an Arab-Pakistani bank with CIA ties that parlayed money laundering and the discreet movement of black gold into ownership of the biggest bank in Washington, D.C. The collapse of BCI and what the Wall Street Journal called the world's largest bank fraud also snared Anderson's protege, Clark Clifford, who was indicted for fraud. Clifford and his associate, Robert Altman, headed the first American bank shares, the BCCI front in the nation's capital, and were accused of using political patronage to shield BCCI from full investigation. Anderson's reputation began to crumble when it was revealed by Bernard Nossiter in the Washington Post that he had sought and received $290,000 from a Texas oil man while serving as Eisenhower's Secretary of the Treasury. Anderson later pleaded, pleaded guilty to federal charges of tax evasion and money laundering, money laundering and died in disgrace. And I'm sure a lot of you guys already know about the Bank of Commerce and Credit International. Um, once again, another thing that could be a whole episode in itself. But we need to return to the rabbit hole that we are already going down so that way we can return to Edward Lansdale before too terribly long. But I do think that this is interesting. Um, so according to the Seagraves, due to widespread suspicion that the Bank of International Settlements in Zurich was laundering access loot, the Bretton Woods settlement was reached to create a new central financial clearinghouse, the International Monetary Fund. So gold was assigned at the time a dollar value of $35 an ounce, and all other currencies were valued against the dollar, and each IMF member country agreed on a dollar value of their currency in U.S. dollars. So each member country also deposited some gold and reserves to maintain the value of their currency, but given the fact that the U.S. owned 60% of the world's official gold reserves, this gave America some leverage, to say the very least, over all these other countries. And so, once again, I am going to be reading from Gold Warriors. Also, the argument was made that the existence of so much black gold, if it became public knowledge, would cause the fixed price of $35 an ounce to collapse. As so many countries now linked their currencies to the U.S. dollar, and the dollar was linked to gold, 
Currency values throughout the world might then plummet, causing financial disaster. But so long as it was kept secret, gold prices could be kept at $35 an ounce, and currencies pegged to gold would be stable. Meanwhile, the black gold would serve as a reserve asset, bolstering the prime banks in each country and strengthening the government of those nations. As a safeguard, the black gold placed in those banks was earmarked or strictly limited in the uses that could be made of it. This enabled Washington to bring pressure from time to time on those governments, central banks, and prime banks. So long as a country and its leaders cooperated with Washington and remained allied to it in the Cold War, the sleeping bullion would provide the asset base for patronage. Gold bearer certificates and other derivatives could be given as gifts or bribes without actually giving away the bullion itself. Beneficial trusts could be set up on behalf of certain statesmen, military leaders, or political figures, or their families. In the hands of clever men like Anderson and McCloy, the possibilities were endless. From time to time, as more bullion was recovered from golden lily vaults in the Philippines, quantities of the bullion would be offered in strictest secrecy to central banks or to consortiums of private buyers. So I said earlier that we could kind of get into why they didn't want to make a big announcement that they had found all this gold, whether it be Nazi or Imperial Japanese or, you know, fascist Italy gold that they found. And it's because that in secrecy, it could be much more effectively used. They could buy off people and politicians and political parties. They could have sway over the banks and they could, you know, create these derivatives based off of it and they could do all of these things and not only, you know, create more wealth for themselves, but the amount of power that they would have through these black budgets of gold was tremendous. And so that is why they decided to keep all of this under wraps. So this access loot, as the Seagraves delve into in great depth in Gold Warriors, in which we will discuss some in this episode, would be used in bribes and to rig foreign elections. And the Seagraves also documented in Gold Warriors how banks who grew accustomed to these large amounts of gold would refuse to surrender gold and even swindled owners out of this gold by denouncing their documents that show their ownership of the gold as counterfeit. And this is what would happen to the heirs of Santi's gold accounts, which mysteriously were handed over to none other than Edward Lansdale. And I'm going to put up a Twitter thread before too long where I discuss Edward Lansdale and some of the stuff in Gold Warriors. So look out for that because I will actually put a picture, a photograph of a bank document showing that Edward Lansdale was a holder of massive amounts of gold that would have came from, you know, the Imperial Japanese, at least if we are to believe the Seagraves, but how the hell else would he have came up with this large amount of gold? So anyways, you can follow me at ThingObserver uh, on Twitter if you don't already. I think most of you probably figured out about this show from Twitter, so you guys probably already follow me, but if not, look out for that. It's a very... There's a good possibility that by the time this show comes out, that thread will already be out there. 
But anyway, speaking of Lansdale, let's return to the infamous Cold Warrior. So at the beginning of this recovery of the Golden Lily loot, Lansdale would act as a supervisor and would see that the gold would make its way to American bases like the U.S. Air Force Base at Clark Field, as well as other locales. And often due to the sheer weight of these loads, the job would be given to the Navy to transport this loot. And one source would even insist to the Seagraves that this is why Anderson was given the position of Navy Secretary, just so he could oversee these incredibly heavy loads of gold and other treasures to make their way over to, uh, you know, U.S. Air Force bases or military bases or whatever. So Lansdale would be made a major in 1947, and he would also become the deputy director of G2, so this American military intelligence, before transferring transferring to the air force and becoming a lieutenant colonel and he would work in the philippines under frank weisner who the seagraves called the mad hatter of the cia and you know the cia is full of uh, psychopaths and psychotics especially at the time of the cold war so being the mad hatter of the cia is quite the title so Weisner was running the new CIA division, the Office of Policy Coordination, and Lansdale would then groom, um, you know, uh, so anyways, that's about Frank Weisner, but Lansdale would groom Raymond Magsaysay, who would be the seventh president of the Philippines to do the bidding of Washington and to help squash the communist rebellion in the country. So typically, or typical of Lansdale, Psy war tricks would be used that speak a lot about this cold warrior. Um, so this is uh, from uh, Gold Warriors. Lansdale, always the huckster, had, move, had movie crews film phony attacks on villages staged by special units of the Filipino army. And the next day filmed the liberation of the village led by the well-coached Magsese. It was pure Hollywood. So very interesting, you know, basically staging the putting down of the communist rebellion and the liberation of the Filipino people. So, you know, as as the as the uh, Seagraves say, it was pure Hollywood. So very interesting. And now I'm going to read a decent sized quote from the Phoenix program, which is by Douglas Valentine. And this is going to talk a little bit about Lansdale's time in the Philippines. But the Phoenix Program is a great book. It's about what else besides the Phoenix Program that took place in Vietnam. And we will get into how this became something that Lansdale was a part of. But in this quote that I'm going to read from the Phoenix Program, we can kind of see some of the proto-Michael Aquino type stuff that is taking place amongst intelligence circles about how to use the beliefs of a local population against them in psychological warfare. And I think it's very interesting, and I think that you guys will find this all very interesting, especially if you haven't read The Phoenix Program, which, if you haven't, it is a little bit of an academic read. It's not the easiest read all the time, but it is very, very good, and it's very rewarding, and it will tell you a lot about just American history, especially the Vietnam War. But the Phoenix Program, which we don't have time to get into as of right now, would end up becoming the foundation for all kinds of other future 
projects by the American government. So couldn't recommend both Gold Warriors or the Phoenix Program enough. So anyways, the Phoenix Program book says, Lanky laid-back Ed Lansdale arrived in Saigon, fresh from having managed a successful anti-communist counterinsurgency in the Philippines, where his black bag of dirty tricks included counterterrorism and the assassination of government officials who opposed his lackey, Raymond Magsaysay. In the Philippines, his tactics earned him the nickname of the Ugly American. He brought those tactics to Saigon along with a team of dedicated Filipino anti-communists who, in the words of one veteran CIA officer, would slit their grandmother's throat for $1.85. In his autobiography, In the Midst of Wars, Lansdell gives an example of the counter-terror tactics he employed in the Philippines. He tells how one psychological warfare operation played upon the popular dread of an esong, or vampire, to solve a difficult problem. The problem was that Lansdale wanted government troops to move out of a village and hunt communist guerrillas in the hills. But the local politicians were afraid that if they did, the guerrillas would swoop down on the village and the bigwigs would be victims. So, writes Lansdale, a combat psi war team was brought in. It planted stories among town residents of a vampire living on the hill where the Hucks were based. Two nights later, after giving the stories time to circulate among Huck sympathizers in the town and make their way up to the hill camp, the Cywar squad set up an ambush along a trail used by the Hucks. When a Huck patrol came along the trail, the ambushers silently snatched the last man of the patrol, their move unseen in the dark night. They punctured his neck with two holes, vampire fashion, held the body up by the hills, drained it of blood, and put the corpse back on the trail. When the Hucks returned to look for the missing man and found their bloodless comrade, every member of the patrol believed that the vampire had got him, and that one of them would be next if they remained on the hill. When daylight came, the whole Huck squadron moved out of the vicinity. Lansdale defines the incident as low humor and an appropriate response to the glum and deadly practices of communists and other authoritarians. And by doing so, former advertising executive Lansdale, the merry prankster whom author Graham Greene dubbed the quiet American, came to represent the hypocrisy of American policy in South Vietnam. For Lansdale used Madison Avenue language to construct a squeaky clean Boy Scout image behind which he masked his own perverse delight in atrocity. So anyways, I know that that was a uh, not the shortest read in the world, but I thought that it was interesting enough to warrant that. And it just goes to show that, you know, the Hucks, these communists who were in the midst of revolution, they would have their local fears of vampires used against them by Lansdale in a gruesome fashion, to say the least. So the Seagraves attest to the fact that it wasn't these clever tricks that made Lansdale the infamous Cold Warrior that national security psychopaths and intelligence agency spooks would grow to know and love, but rather what made him the infamous Cold Warrior that he would become was the way he capitalized on his role in recovering Black Eagle and Imperial Japanese loot. 
Always a charmer, Lansdale was able to con Washington power brokers into thinking he was a single-handedly um, that he was single-handedly responsible in these recoveries. And for all the things that you can say about Lansdale, from everything that I've read about him, he does seem to be quite the charmer, and he would become popular amongst the Dulles brothers and other men who attended their drinking parties. So you have Lansdale becoming the darling of the Dulles Brothers Ball. <laughs> and despite all his charm, that didn't stop his projects over in Asia from being, in some people's eyes, unmitigated failures. But he was at the very least good at covering up these failures, and like any good ad man, he knew how to sell you on a lie. And the Seagraves say that Lansdale was, throughout the 50s, coming to and fro Tokyo on secret missions where he would be accompanied by Filipino assassins. The daughter of an officer who knew Lansdale said that he would show up in Japan with, quote, characters who are known as his assassins, the ones he brought in from the Philippines. As a kid, I was fascinated by him and his gun, which everyone could see. Unusual, because no one in Japan had weapons. The whole idea of Lansdale and our government assassinating people struck me as shocking. Weird. Yeah, and he was shocking and weird indeed. And when Alan Dulles sent Lansdale over to Vietnam, he would tell Eisenhower that he was sending one of his best men. So, that just kind of goes to show that... He was the darling of Alan Dulles. Dulles really saw the value in Lansdale. And I've seen some things when I was reading into him online and stuff that kind of tried to portray Lansdale as a bit uh, more, how would you put it, not conservative, but a little bit less psychotic than some of the other Cold Warriors. So it really goes to show that he did a good job of selling that squeaky clean image. And there are still people to this day who kind of buy into his lies. So anyways, Dulles is sending over one of his best men to Vietnam. And Lansdale would show up in Vietnam during the time that Vietnam was divided along the 17th parallel. With the Viet Minh in control in the north and the Bao Dai, or Bao Dai in control in the south. And a truce was declared at the Geneva Conference, and the French were to withdraw from the north, and the Viet Minh were to withdraw from the south. So the CIA would get those filthy Frenchmen out of their way and install their own leader into the mix, a good old Catholic boy named Nyo Dinh Diem, by organizing labor leaders and intellectuals into the Khan Lao Party. So... In the book Vietnamese History from 1939 through 1975, law professor Nguyen Ngoc Hui, who was exiled by Diem, said, They persecuted those who did not accept their orders without discussion, and tolerated or even encouraged their followers to take bribes, because a corrupt servant must be loyal to them out of fear of punishment. So we have this... Uh, CIA installed Can Lao Party, who is led by Nyo Dinh Diem, and he is not the nicest guy, to say the least. And Douglas Valentine 
would write, Into this web of intrigue in January 1954 stepped U.S. Air Force Colonel Edward Lansdale, a confidential agent of Director of Central Intelligence Alan Dulles and his brother, Secretary of State John Dulles. Lansdale defeated the United Sect Front by either killing or buying off its leaders. He then hurriedly began to build from the top down a Vietnam infused with American values and dollars. While the Viet Cong, as Lansdale christened the once heroic but now vilified Viet Minh, built slowly from the ground up on a foundation they had laid for over 30 years, 40 years. In Saigon, Lansdale managed several programs which were designed to ensure Diem's internal security and which later evolved and were incorporated into Phoenix. This process began in July 1954 when posing as an assistant Air Force attaché to the U.S. Embassy, Lansdale got the job of resettling nearly one million Catholic refugees from North Vietnam. As chief of the CIA's Saigon military mission, Lansdale used the exodus to mount operations against North Vietnam. To this end, he hired the Filipino-staffed Freedom Company to train two paramilitary teams, which, posing as refugee relief organizations supplied by the CIA-owned airline Civil Air Transport, activated stay-behind nets, sabotaged power plants, and spread false rumors of a communist bloodbath. In this last regard, a missionary named Tom Dooley concocted lurid tales of Viet Minh soldiers disemboweling pregnant Catholic women, castrating priests, and sticking bamboo slivers in the ears of children so that way they could not hear the word of God. Dooley's tall tales of terror galvanized American support for Diem, but were uncovered in 1979 during a Vatican sainthood investigation. Another Lansdale program was aimed at, aimed at several thousand Viet Minh stay-behind agents, organizing secret cells and conducting propaganda among the people. As a way of attacking these agents, Lansdale hired the Freedom Company to activate Operation Brotherhood, a paramedical team patterned on the typical Special Forces A-team. Under CIA direction, Operation Brotherhood built dispensaries that were used as cover for covert counter-terror operations. Operation Brotherhood spawned the Eastern Construction Company, which provided 500 hardcore Filipino anti-communists to, while building roads and dispensing medicines, assisted DM's security forces by identifying and eliminating Viet Minh agents. And now I come to my last reading from Valentine before we wrap up on Lansdale. And this is just another example of Lansdale exploiting the spiritual beliefs of people during the course of his psychological warfare escapades. So sorry if this is beginning to feel like an audiobook read by Luke Marshall, unless that's what you want, in which case you're welcome, my friends. But anyways, back to Douglas Valentine. Curiously, terror tactic... Mm, not very good at the audiobook thing right now. Curiously, terror tactics often involve mutilating the third eye, the seat of of insight and secret thoughts and playing on fears of an all-seeing cosmic eye of God. Used by morale officers in World War I, the eye of God trick called for pilots and small aircraft to fly over enemy camps and call out the names of individual soldiers. Ed Lansdale applied the technique in the Philippines. 
At night, when the town was asleep, a cyborg team would creep into town and paint an eye copied from the Egyptian eye that appears atop the pyramid in the Great Seal of the United States on a wall facing the house of each suspect, Lansdale writes. The mysterious presence of these malevolent eyes in the morning had a sharply sobering effect. So, in essence, Lansdale was really good with mind-fucking the people of both the Philippines and Vietnam. So, anyways, that is one of the other sources that we will dive into on this subject of Edward Lansdale, the Phoenix program. I will list all the sources I use at the end of this episode so that way you guys can do more research or you know just have some fun looking into some of the stuff that i talk about if it has something that you weren't familiar with Watching the smoke from the factory flow With my back to the rain rider From under the snow I'm out of the grave spider Didn't you know I'm gonna send you to heaven Leaning my shoulder into a wall Covered in rainwater When somebody calls It's somebody's granddaughter She'll pay to make someone crawl And then send them to heaven Watching the dice getting wildly thrown Killing the pain rider That everyone knows Ain't it a shame, spider I'm gonna take what you owe And then you're going to heaven With my back to the rain rider From under the snow I'm out of the grave spider Didn't you know I'm gonna send you to heaven
1960, Eisenhower would approve a CIA plan to overthrow who else but Fidel Castro. And this plan would have a budget of $13 million, which was set aside for training paramilitary groups outside of Cuba. And the strategy was concocted by Richard Bissell and Richard Helm. So we've got the two dicks who are in charge of overthrowing Castro. And at one point in March of 1961, CIA man William Harvey arranged a meeting between CIA operative Jim O'Connell and mafia men like Sam Giancana, Santo Traficante, John Rosalie, and Robert Mayhew. And O'Connell would give Rosalie poison pills to be used against Castro and $10,000. And uh, so this just kind of gives us an idea of the type of stuff that was going on in this effort to kill Castro, which, you know, kind of started in the 19 in 1960, if not earlier. So we have this nexus of organized crime and the CIA and national security guys all working to whack Fidel Castro. And some of you guys might be going, okay, Luke, but I thought that we were talking about Ed Lansdale. And, you know, this seems like quite the divergence from talking about Yamashita's gold and Ed Lansdale. But this operation, I should say, against Castro would eventually morph into what was known as Operation Mongoose in November of 1961. And this operation would be led by Lansdale on the military side and William Harvey on the CIA side. And a CIA co-organizer, Samuel Halpern, would say of Operation Mongoose involvement across various agencies... CIA and the U.S. Army and military forces and the Department of Commerce and Immigration Treasury, God knows who else. Everybody was in Mongoose. It was a government-wide operation run out of Bobby Kennedy's office with Ed Lansdale as the mastermind. And so we have Ed Lansdale who is running Operation Mongoose. And many of you guys have probably heard of Operation Mongoose before. And it's something that is not only pivotal in understanding the CIA's machinations during the Cold War, but it ends up kind of playing a role in the milieu that would possibly be the ones who killed John F. Kennedy. But anyways, let's continue going into Lansdale and Operation Mongoose and just, just trying to get Castro out of power. So on March 13th, 1962, the Joint Chiefs of Staff would make a proposition to Kennedy to attack itself and blame Cuba, which is called, as any listener of Thing Observed, Things Observed most likely knows, a false flag attack. So we have the Joint Chiefs of Staff who are like, Hey, let's, you know, attack America and blame it on Cuba. And this was Operation Northwoods, which I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, have already heard of. And Northwoods was a response by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to a request from Edward Lansdale for a brief but pre precise description of pretext which would provide just a... Let me, let me reread this again. And this is Lansdale's own words. But it was a request for a brief but dis precise description of pretext which would provide justification for U.S. military intervention in Cuba. So, you know, kind of like how 
9-11 ended up being for Afghanistan and Iraq, even though it's kind of silly and doesn't make a lot of sense. But it would be something that could have justified the intervention in the Middle East and the start of the war on terror in the eyes of Americans. This is what the Joint Chiefs of Staff was thinking in regards to Cuba. You know, we can't just waltz into Cuba for no good reason and say, hey, it's pissing us off that you're nationalizing all of your industries and that these private companies who the CIA works at the behest of can no longer profit off of your country, so we're going to kill your leader and put in a puppet government. You know, most people don't like to hear that. So instead, they're like, hey, let's attack the American... Um, let's attack Americans, blame it on Cuba, and that'll get Americans good and pissed off, which is just what we want. And so this document would be signed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Chief Lyman Limnitzer, and he would list some of the potential false flags that could be utilized in order to come up with the pretext for American intervention in Cuba. So this is from the document. We could develop a communist Cuban terror campaign in the Miami area and other Florida cities and even in Washington. The terror campaign could be pointed at refugees seeking haven in the United States. We could sink a boatload of Cubans en route to Florida, real or simulated. We could foster attempts on lives of Cuban refugees in the United States, even to the extent of wounding in instances to be widely publicized. Exploding a few plastic bombs in carefully chosen spots, the arrest of Cuban agents and the release of prepared documents substantiating Cuban involvement also would be helpful in projecting the idea of an irresponsible government. And so, Kennedy, JFK that is, would rightfully dismiss this proposal as a ludicrous plot that would almost ensure war in the future. And even with all of Kennedy's faults, he had some good attributes to him as well. Otherwise, why the hell would they have killed the man? Um, and this would be one of many things that would rub the national security lunatics the wrong way. And it is very likely one of the things that would lead to JFK's demise. And as the professor and absolute powerhouse of a researcher who I was fortunate enough to meet. I feel like I say that every three or four episodes, but it's just hard not to bring up. Um, Peter Dell Scott, he would say of Northwoods, was Northwoods an anomaly? anomaly? Certainly not. Creating provocations to justify action by making it appear you are only reacting has long been a ploy of many governments over time and throughout the world. And so... You know, we have Kennedy reject Operation Northwoods, and we can kind of see this whole milieu which Lansdale is operating inside of, which might have very well been the milieu which would be responsible for killing Kennedy. I mean, it was these national security psychopaths that Kennedy would piss off, and it would be the CIA <laughs> would be the ones who would organize the murder of JFK. And so it's, you know, important to remember, I'm contemplating right now whether or not I'm going to read from Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years by David Talbot, because it does a good job of summarizing what happened with Operation Northwoods. But it is a little bit long, but you know what? I'll just go ahead and read it, 
And if you're sick of hearing about Operation Northwoods, just jump forward in the episode just, you know, a few minutes and you'll probably be close to being done with this reading. But anyway, so this comes from David Talbot and Brothers. The military leaders did not spell out how their exploding bombs would be limited to only wounding, not killing, their unsuspecting victims, and how they could be assured that the only casualties would be innocent Cuban refugees and not American bystanders. But the U.S. military has long been overly confident in its precision. There is no record of how McNamara responded to this cynical proposal by his top military officers when Limnitzer met with him that Tuesday afternoon, but the sinister plan, which was codenamed Operation Northwoods, did not receive higher approval. When I asked him about Northwoods, McNamara said, I have absolutely zero recollection of it, but I sure as hell would have rejected it. I really can't believe that anyone was proposing such provocative acts in Miami. How stupid. Like the president, McNamara regarded Limnitzer with barely disguised contempt. McNamara's arrogance was astonishing, said a Limnitzer aide. He gave General Limnitzer very short shrift and treated him like a schoolboy. The general almost stood at attention when he came into the room. Everything was yes sir and no sir. Limnitzer even fell afoul of fashion-conscious Jackie Kennedy. We all thought well of him until he made the mistake of coming into the White House on Saturday morning in a sport jacket, she contemptuously remarked, underlying how class and culture, not just politics, divided the Kennedy White House from the military. Limnitzer, a far-right ideologue whose endorsement of General Edwin Walker's paranoid indoctrination of army troops had raised the suspicions of Senator William Fulbright's Foreign Relations Committee, was equally dismissive of the Kennedy crowd. He thought their administration was crippled not only by inexperience but also by arrogance arising from failure to recognize their own limitations. The problem was simply that civilians would not accept military judgments. On March 16th, three days after his meeting with McNamara, Lemnitzer was summoned by President Kennedy to the Oval Office for a discussion of Cuba strategy that was also attended by McCone, Bundy, Lansdale, and Taylor. At one point, the irresponsible Lansdale began holding forth, as usual, on the improving conditions for popular revolt inside Cuba, adding that once the glorious anti-Castro revolution began, we must be ready to intervene with U.S. forces if necessary. This brought an immediate reaction from Kennedy, ever alert after the Bay of Pigs about being sandbagged into military response in Cuba. The group was not proposing that he authorize U.S. military U.S. military intervention, was it? No, Taylor and others immediately rushed to assure him. But Lindenser could not restrain himself. He jumped in at that moment to run Operation Northwoods up the flagpole. The general spared the president's the plan's more gruesome brainstorm, such as blowing up people on the streets of Miami and the nation's capital and blaming it on Castro. But he informed Kennedy and the Joint Chiefs of Staff that they had plans for creating plausible pretext to use force against Cuba, with the pretext either attacks on U.S. aircraft or Cuban action in Latin America for which we could retaliate. Kennedy was not amused. He fixed Lemnitzer with a hard look and said, bluntly, that we were not discussing the use of military force. According to Lansdale's notes on the meeting, the president icily added that Lemnitzer might find he did not have enough divisions to fight in Cuba if the Soviets responded to his Caribbean gambit by going to war in Berlin or elsewhere. Despite the president's cold reaction, the Joint Chiefs chairman persisted in this war campaign. About a month after the White House meeting, Lemnitzer convened his fellow service chiefs in the tank, as the Joint Chiefs of Staff conference room was called. 
Under his direction, they hammered out a stern memo to McNamara insisting that the Cuban problem be solved in the near future. That would never be accomplished by waiting around for Ed Lansdale's fairy tale popular uprising, the memo made clear. There was only one way of getting the job done. The Joint Chiefs of Staff recommended that a national policy of early military intervention in Cuba be adopted by the United States. Lemnitzer was wearing out Kennedy and McNamara's patience. After a National Security Council meeting in June, the president took the general side and told him he wanted to send him to Europe to become NATO's new supreme allied commander. Kennedy would replace Lemnitzer as the nation's top military man with more amenable Max Taylor. He would have one less warmonger to harass him about Cuba. So anyways, that was a bit of a long reading, but I think that it is interesting and instructive of what exactly was going on around Operation Northwoods. And anyways, let's get back to the man of the hour, Ed Lansdale. So this was only one tale of the Cold War paranoia that would result in assassination attempts on Castro, as well as the campaign of terrorism and sabotage in Cuba carried out by the CIA and its minions, known as Operation Mongoose, which we have, in large part, Ed Lansdale to thank. So, while Kennedy is fresh on our mind, it is worth briefly mentioning that L. L. Fletcher Prouty, who would spend over a decade as a liaison between the Pentagon and the CIA, he would write all kinds of books like The Secret Team, Um, he believed the Kennedy assassination was a coup d'etat orchestrated by elements of the military and intelligence community, and he would claim that Lansdale was in Dallas on that fateful day in November of 1963. He would even say that Lansdale can be seen as a passerby in the infamous photograph, which you guys have probably all seen, of the tramps, you know, who are coming from the overpass area. Um, so anyways, when I put up my Twitter thread, I will also include a picture of that. However, I do want to mention that I haven't seen any evidence to corroborate this, and the man in the picture, while it could be Ed Lansdale, it could also be somebody else. And Prouty would say of Lansdale, he was there like the orchestra leader coordinating these things. And while I definitely think it was CIA guys who were, you know, the ones who were ultimately responsible for getting Kennedy whacked, I can't say with certainty that Lansdale was in on this and was one of these guys, but perhaps I'm just ill-informed of, uh, you know, of this aspect of the Kennedy assassination. So if any of you guys do know some really damning evidence about Lansdale in reference to the Kennedy assassination, DM me or tweet at me on Twitter. Uh, DMs are always open. Always glad to hear from you guys. I have had recently people, you know, two or three people message me a week. And it's always really great to hear from you guys. And I'm always interested in what you guys have to say. So anyways, um, back to Lansdale. It's also interesting to note that Lansdale retired at the beginning of November of 1963. I want to say November 1st of 1963, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it is just peculiar and something I thought worth noting. But even after retirement, he would spend some time in the American embassy at Saigon. I guess he could just not keep his little fingers out of the pie that was Vietnam. But it seems as if by this point in his career that well, his career was largely over. And in 1987, he would die of a heart ailment at the age of 79. 
So that is Edward Lansdale. So he is one of these people who is absolutely instrumental in the golden lily loot coming into the possession of the United States. And I thought that it was worth really diving into him. And I think that we did a good job of kind of hitting some of the uh, highlights or lowlights, whatever the best way to phrase it is, of his career. And I think that he is someone who is very interesting and merited some additional investigation outside of what the Seagraves say of him and Gold Warriors. Because Lansdale is certainly an interesting cat, to say the very least. But anyways, let's go ahead and discuss discuss very briefly how some of this Golden Lily Black budget which was you know, set up by people like Santee and Edward Lansdale, would end up being used by the American national security state and U.S. intelligence agencies for their own benefit. So without further ado, let's get into that before we conclude this episode and this series. So one among many examples of this would be when CIA counterintelligence man James Jesus Angleton recovered gold from Ethiopia that had been stolen by Mussolini's forces and would use this to rig elections in Spain by promoting pro-American anti-communist candidates. And the CIA would then secure 100 million lira from the Pope's personal account to back anti-communist candidates. So there is one example of the CIA using access loot in order to rig elections and to fight their Cold War. And something similar would happen in Greece when Britain's empty treasury prohibited them from giving any more financial or military aid to the country. And so London would tell Washington of the issue and how this could mean the spread of communism in the country. So Truman would go before Congress and ask for $400 million for the country, saying, One way of life is based upon the will of the majority and is distinguished by free institutions, representative government, free elections, guarantees of individual liberty, freedom of speech and religion, and freedom from political oppression. The second way of life is based upon the will of a minority, forcibly imposed upon the majority. It relies upon terror and oppression, a controlled press and radio, fixed elections, and the suppression of personal freedoms. But, as the Seagraves point out, secretly, Truman simultaneously authorized the use of access war loot and other unvouchered funds to do precisely that, to interfere in the political life of sovereign nations, to buy elections, to undercut the rule of law, to control the media, to carry out assassinations, and to oppose America's will on countries with whom it was not at war. And so some of this Golden Lily Axis loot would also be used to set up political action funds in Japan. One of these budget, the M Fund, would be used by America in the 1940s when a socialist government won in Japan. And as you guys know, that absolutely cannot stand and something had to be done about it. And so the M Fund would be used by America's in the 1940s when this socialist government won in Japan, and the fund would be used to discredit the cabinet. And the M Fund would also, again, be used to sway decision-making in Japan when Japan was considering developing relations with the People's Republic of China. So soon after, 
Yoshida Shiguru would become prime minister, and this would soothe the, con- soothe the conscience of the establishment, given the fact that he was a conservative. And the Imfun would actually, during the time of Yoshida's government, be called the Yoshida Fund. And afterwards, it would return to being the Imfund. And so the Imfund was basically used to discredit socialism in Japan. But another fund that was set up in Japan with this golden lily loot was the Yatsuya Fund. The formerly mentioned head of G2, General Willoughby, was in control of this fund, and it would be used to bankroll Japan's underworld, including things such as extortion, kidnapping, and murder, as well as the suppression of dissidents and leftist activity. And so this is the real dirty business fund. And Willoughby would work with the Yakuza in this suppression of leftists along with Yoshia Kodama, who we mentioned in the last episode, if you guys tuned into that and remember. And um, Yoshio was a Japanese ultra-nationalist who had become enormously wealthy through his involvement in smuggling operations. So Kodama would be arrested after the war as a war criminal, but American military intelligence under Willoughby would have all charges against him dropped on the condition that he do what else but to fight communism in Asia. And so Kodama, using his CIA connections, he would funnel money to right-wing politicians in Japan, and he would also do other lovely things like disrupt labor unions, and Kodama would actually go on in the future to support two political parties made up of the Japanese far-right which eventually would emerge and become the Liberal Democratic Party. And don't let the name Liberal Democratic Party make you think it was anything other than being a far-right organization, political party. But the Yutsuya district, from which the fund derived its name, was described by the Seagraves as a seedy Tokyo tenderloin populated in the post-war years by gangsters, prostitutes and bottom feeders a hub for the black market awake all night with illegal gambling casinos and attached brothels and so kodama would fund the cannon agency with some of his own money which he had a good deal of it and the cannon agency was named after u.s army colonel jack cannon and according to the seagraves this was willoughby's dirtiest operation And this was effectively a death squad, the Cannon Agency. And Jack Cannon arranged the bodily harm and murder of labor union organizers, socialists, student leaders, and all other kinds of leftists and dissidents. And Cannon was thought to have actually been behind the assassination of the left-wing writer Kaji Wataru, as well as the torture and dismemberment of the president of Japan's National Railroads, Shimuyama, who'd been found hacked into pieces alongside the railroad tracks. And Cannon would call on the Yakuza when he was in need of help. So once again, we have this nexus of intelligence agency assets and the criminal underworld who are all working together in order to fight communism and as well as enrich the people involved. And then there was the chief prosecutor in the war crimes trials, um, and he was a good friend of MacArthur, and this was Joseph B. Kinnon, and he was the one who would set up the Keenan Fund 
to bribe witnesses at the war crimes trials and to persuade people to falsify their statements. And this fund was also used to prevent testimony in order to cover up Japan's biological and chemical warfare programs, as well as the existence of the looted gold. So this was the cover-up fund that we're talking about when we talk about the Keenan Fund. And according to the Seagrace, some of the people who did not accept these bribes would just happen to die suddenly and oftentimes suspicious deaths. So I could continue to talk about how all of this Golden Lily and Axis War loot um, was used for years on, but this is already the third episode, so I feel like we have already covered a lot of ground, and also I do want people to go ahead and to read Gold Warriors for themselves, because it is truly a fantastic book. If you want to learn about all the nitty-gritty details of what we've already discussed, check out Gold Warriors, as well as if you just want to learn more about how this loot was used and more about how it came into existence in the first place, do check out Gold Warriors. I give it five out of five stars. Great book. Couldn't highly recommend it enough. So let's just go ahead and wrap up this discussion and we will wrap it up with a quote from douglas valentine in an article that he wrote for counterpunch where he is talking about gold warriors and so this is douglas valentine here general macarthur set up the yatsuya fund to finance japan's yakuza underworld and one of his aides set up the m fund to help reconstruct japan and turn it into an economic powerhouse Eisenhower used the M-Fund to help create Japan's Liberal Democratic Party in 1956, and in 1960, Vice President Richard Nixon turned over M-Fund over to Japan's Prime Minister, Kishi Nabusuki, in return for kickbacks. Nixon used to help finance his presidential campaign. Carter... Reagan, Clinton, and both Bushes were complicit, using Golden Lily slush fund money to buy elections in nations all around the world. George W. got into the act in March 2001, sending Navy SEAL commandos to the Philippines to recover a portion of General Yamashita's gold. Bush was privately in the market to buy some of the bullion that was being recovered. His representative was William S. Parrish, his nominee as ambassador to Great Britain and the manager of his blind trust so there's a brief summary of some of the stuff that is discussed in gold warriors and later on more treasure hunters would come in search of the golden lily loot people like robert curtis in the 1970s and curtis who had came into possession of copies of imperial prince takita's maps who we discussed all about prince takita and ben and all of that earlier was actually backed by the john birch society and would work alongside ferdinand marcos on recovering the loot and curtis would even enlist ben in helping him locate some of these treasures but curtis much like roxas from last episode roger he would end up getting screwed out of his money and was likely to hold on and was lucky to hold on to his life and whether it be pope pius VII helping hirohito launder money through the vatican bank or uh, various banks concealing imperial army and a nazi loot and or the drama that ensued after roger filed his multi-million dollar lawsuit all I can say is that the Seagraves really, really outdid themselves with their work in Gold Warriors. And as much information has been given in this podcast series, there is just 
so much more to uncover in the book. And their book also gave us a good reason to dive a bit deeper and look at some other sources in regards to people like Edward Lansdale. But there is just so much more that I like to say, but there are so many other topics to dive into. And so I would really like to get into some of those other topics. And once again, I could just keep going on and on and on about Gold Warriors for far too long. But if you have found all of these episodes interesting and you want to learn more, Gold Warriors by Donald and Peggy Seagrave, that is what you should check out. Um, and yeah, there's just so many more interesting tidbits like, you know, we, we've talked a lot about Santee and how it seemed like he was at the behest of American, you know, and intelligence working on behalf of them. But, you know, the secrets end up going on to like how he was actually, you know, working for the Vatican and he was trying to keep tabs on it because the Vatican became aware of some of this gold. I, I could just keep going on and on and on. There's just so much to talk about. But I think that we have covered enough for this series. And I have some topics that I think are really, really interesting coming down the pipe that you guys are going to be totally enthralled with so i just want to get to those and for today our sources were gold warriors by donald and peggy seagrave uh, the phoenix program by douglas valentine check both of those out we also referenced brothers by david talbot um we um referenced cuba operation northwoods the forgotten insanity by peter dale scott which i will put a link to that article below um, we also mentioned, um, I used as a source, a Guardian post from a long time ago about L. Fletcher Prouty. Um, I believe it's actually his obituary, just kind of talking about who he was as a person. And an article about Gold Warriors written by Douglas Valentine on counterpunch.org. So I will also link that down in the notes for today. But anyways, I'm Luke Marshall. This was Things Observed. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode or this series if you've listened to all three episodes. We've got a lot of good stuff coming along, so stay tuned for all of that. If you don't follow me on Twitter and you have a Twitter, you can follow me at ThingObserver. Um, all one word, no underscores or anything like that, just thing observer. And I post threads in relation to the show, and you can see images and documents and some stuff that I, you know, can't do visually because this is an audio platform. And I'll also just talk about some other stuff sometimes. And it's also a good way to get in contact with me if there's ever anything that you want to talk to me about or something that you'd want to bring to my attention. If you want to tell me how wrong I am about something. If you want to just say hi, go ahead and do it. My DMs are open to anybody. I do check them. So if I don't get with you immediately, I will see it eventually. And I will respond to you so long as you are... Uh, a real person, or you don't give me fed vibes, but I don't think that you guys are going to do that. But anyhow, my name is Luke Marshall. This was Things Observed. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Love you all. Take care, and I will talk to y'all soon.
falling down the staircase And I, for one, have felt its breezes Equilibrium inebriated Our social graces have been displaced As we sink deeper into the dream The volume increases Nighttime resurrects Spotlight silent wars Rebel somewhere below The surface is versus The surface is versus The shell is dropped Lines explode Shards of words of a shattered voice And there's still Both in. Yeah. 